So if someone tells you that they are considering suicide or they're very depressed, you know, I would believe them and not try to question the reasons why that they're saying that point is that they're trying to share. And so I I would want to listen to that. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, aren't very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. I'm going to keep trying. We launched in July of 2020. We're coming up on two years. So of course, I want to thank everyone who has been a part of this podcast, especially the attempt survivors who have joined me here and shared so openly and so bravely. I really appreciate it. And to everyone who listens, a giant, huge, ginormous thank you. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com on Facebook or Twitter, at Suicide Noted. And we have another way you can reach out by leaving us an audio recording. I'll put that information in the show notes. And whether you are an attempt survivor or not, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email, send us a message, or a recording. If you can help us out, show us a little love, take a moment or two right now, if you would. Go to Apple Podcast if you have access to that, and leave us a rating and a review. It really helps people find this podcast. And we do want more people to find this podcast. Thank you for that. And stay tuned. In the coming days, we have an announcement. We've got a new community forming, and we want to invite everybody who has taken part in this podcast. And by taking part, I mean you have been on the show or you have listened to the show. We want you involved. We need more support out there for people going through these kinds of things. So stay tuned for that. I'm really excited and I think you'll get a lot out of it. And remember, we're talking about suicide on this podcast, as the title suggests. So keep that in mind before or as you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Jay. Jay lives in California and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hello, Jay. You doing all right? Yes. How's it going, Sean? It's good. Yeah. In San Diego, you found me through the story stuff. Now we're here talking about suicide. Wow. All right. What compelled you to want to share or talk about this stuff? I ran into you at some storytelling shows that were on Zoom due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that day when we were sharing about mental health stories at your event, I thought it was pretty fascinating that that people could just show up and talk about this stuff, um, you know, and that it was a, a safe place to do that. Mental health has such a stigma, especially suicide attempts. And d- during the pandemic, I think a lot of us were very isolated and that did not help my mental health, probably did not help a lot of people's. I think being mm. able to connect and share and the four of us who told stories that day all had some similarities that I thought were interesting. Right. Question for you. Do you have any idea why there's a stigma around this stuff? 
I'm just like, well, I don't get it personally. I just don't understand it. I'm trying. I'm on like a life mission to understand why this is so stigmatized. I think with um, physical health problems, mm. we all know that that's something that the person can't help. It's not in their control. But for some reason, with mental health things, people think that it's a, a choice, you know, that it's a choice right. to to be addicted or it's a choice to not take mm-hmm. your meds for whatever reason or it's a choice to you know try to commit suicide but that you know we know that that's not true but certainly not everyone knows that right so i always talk about i always wonder about the echo chamber effect of this podcast is that a little too negative oh well i think it's a good question i would hope at least in my case um, I will be sharing this podcast with people who would not have otherwise listened to a podcast about suicide. Um, and maybe yeah. those people can learn something from it and maybe they can share it. And maybe some of them have had their own attempts that they can talk about too. Right. I bet often, or at least sometimes the people that put up the biggest fight are the ones that really need it the most that they, they're, they're yearning for it, but they got to get over that hump of discomfort and shame and all the other stuff we all yeah right. then maybe they've had people in their lives who who made attempts in the past and that's why they have that judgment oh it could be any number of reasons sure sure yeah well there are reasons why people don't talk i i argue they're typically very valid they're not like random decisions by someone who's going through an episode no sure that's possible i think we are we are told very clearly i do not want to hear about this over and over again and you are not crazy, and I will use that language uh, for feeling that way. It is a very clear and obvious thing to me and us. Mm-hmm. All right, Jay in California, our paths have crossed again, which I'm glad for. It's a little sounding rather poetic. Admittedly, I'm a skilled man. What is your connection? I'll leave it sort of open-ended. What's your connection to suicide? Let's see. I'd say that as a kid, I was um, always a, I was a perfectionist. Um, an overachiever is very competitive. That's same as how as how I am as an adult. Um, I made a career of being a perfectionist. I'm a, a book editor. Um, really? <laughs> yes. You edit. Um, wow. I'm going to talk to you about that later. Okay. Just FYI, but it's not my story now. I'm shutting up. Go ahead. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. So perfectionist, um, and I was also feel like very um, excitable. Like I would get stomach aches whenever I do something new, um, even if it was something that I was looking forward to, you know, whether it was the first day of school or going to the state fair, I would have this, you know, nervousness, this anxiety, and I'd get a stomach ache. My parents took me to a doctor when I was about 10. They tested me to see if I had an ulcer, which, you know, yeah, I'm the 10 year old who might have an ulcer because that's, that, that's the kind of kid I was. Um, There was no ulcer. It was not an ulcer. Yeah, there was an ulcer. Yeah. Um, they actually, and where is this all happening? Are you in California at this time? That was in the Midwest. So um, Missouri. Oh, uh, Missouri. So, okay. All right. Yeah. So that doctor did not try any kind of, you know, therapy was never mentioned. Um, they actually prescribed me Valium. <laughs> so just, just for what it's worth, those types of drugs... I'm not even allowed to have at this point because apparently they're so the long-term effects are so dangerous. They're finding. That's right. And yeah. And believe me, Jay, I fucking want them. I need them, but I. 
So you're a 10 year old. They give you Valium. That's the answer. You take them. I did, but luckily um, I did not take them long. I didn't take it long term. I think it was only a few weeks and my parents did not like the idea of having me on Valium long term. So, you know, I didn't take it after that, but it was like, you know, that's maybe there was a missed opportunity there. I love the way you frame that. Yes, that was certainly perhaps even opportunities. We can pluralize it if you would like. I rarely point fingers here. I'm not pointing fingers at your parents. They're probably probably trying, mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. They don't probably know what they're doing because none of us know what the fuck we're doing. You know, so that was one option and they went for it. What happened after that when you stopped taking the Valium? Um, I would still just have t- you know, stomach aches occasionally. And the downside of perfectionism is I beat myself up a lot when I couldn't be perfect. So outwardly, I had high self-esteem, singing and choir and in acting classes and things like that. So I had this like outward need for attention. Good um, grades. Top of my class, had a full scholarship to college. When you were being that perfectionist, did you cope in ways that were unhealthy? Cutting, drinking, drugging, um, whatever else maybe? Yes, yes. Things started to get dark. So secretly, um, I had a drug problem. I had abandonment issues. Well, what kind of drugs are we talking about? Can we share that or no? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I was a teenage meth addict. So, you know, I went like as hard as you can go. Hang on, Jay. You're a straight A student. You're doing other things, right? You're involved in different things. You're not just studying. You're... I wasn't expecting that. And I'm rarely surprised on this podcast. I am telling you, you were balancing that and crystal meth. That's right. I want to understand, maybe I'm naive. Maybe it's from New York or maybe I'm older. That wasn't an option where I was growing up. Maybe that's a blessing. So was it just around? I had a, it was my first boyfriend. Um, Um, Probably would not have gotten into that particular drug if it hadn't been for him. I don't know that I would have known where to find it. But after my relationship with him, then I always knew where to find things, right? Yeah, Um, you were introduced to it. And you probably, did you like it? I did um, for a while. Right. Until I didn't, as, as often happens with any addiction. Sure. But in some ways it helps, right? Sure. I was, you know, studying calculus at 4 a.m. And I was a manager at McDonald's. So I like had the keys to the store. I was opening the store before going to my college classes. And yeah, I was very busy. I had an internship at a club and nightlife magazine. So I was interviewing DJs at 4 a.m. Also, (laughs) yeah, there was there was a lot going on in my life. I ended up kicking that addiction on my own. But I, I do not recommend that. It was very hard and it was all based in my secrecy. I did not want anyone to know Mm. what I was doing. And that was like why I insisted on doing it by myself. The idea of going to rehab or having to tell my parents or teachers finding out like that to me was worse than Mm -hmm. anything else that I was going through in, Mm. in my mind at the time. Yeah, sure. Sure. And you were able to kick it. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, I was really just substituting one addiction for another, for another, for another. Okay. Um, for many years. Right. Didn't kill you. Well, it killed my spirit, but it did not did kill it? me physically. Do you remember a low point? Like the low? I don't want to get too like dramatic about it, but was there a low? 
so many low points. There was a time that I got home from work. I had not done drugs that day. So I guess I must have been coming down and I passed out like as soon as I came in through my my um, parents door and like I passed out into the doorway and my mom, you know, was freaking out and she thought I was on drugs at that, you know, because I had passed out. She was like, are you, you know, tell me what you're on. And I really wasn't on anything. That's why I passed out. And so even then I was not honest with her, but you know, that was a pretty heartbreaking moment. And that encouraged me to, to quit. When did you quit? Um, I was 19. So I was was hooked for three and a half years. You quit. You're in college. You're working. Do you get through all that? Keep your job, get through school. Yes. Miraculously. Yes. Switched to party drugs. And so there was a lot of, a lot of ridiculousness going on with that. So as, as far as depression and Mm -hmm. and suicide, I do remember the first time that I had considered suicide. And that was actually as far back when I was 12 years old. And so that was even before I had started using. Mm. And when you say considered, we're not talking like the idea of it. It's sort of existential questioning. You're talking about you thinking the possibility of not being alive. Um, I guess it would be like fantasies, you know, fantasizing about suicide or how I would do it. 12 years old. Yeah. And the very first time I thought of it, it was more of like a revenge thing. Like my dad was um, emotionally abusive and, um, and I thought of it as like, well, that'll show him kind of thing. But then it progressed from there. Two? Well, fortunately, because I was so young, all the ideas I had about how I would actually kill myself were pretty dumb and would not have worked, um, I, which I know now. But it was still concerning behavior. I was not really the person who would, I didn't want to hurt. Mm. So I, I knew I, I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to be like a cutter. I was afraid if I tried to shoot myself that I would end up uh, surviving and mm-hmm. you know, being injured or maimed. Kind of had this idea, like if I tried to commit suicide, I, I might even fail at that too. So for me, it was about like self-medicating I did feel for many years that pretty confident that I would end up dying of a drug overdose. And I just didn't know if it was yeah. intentional or unintentional. So is that a kind of suicide? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, now that's what I recognize it as. Coroner would say drug overdose, mm. but actually in addition to that could be categorized as a suicide. Right. Because how would the coroner know if you did it on purpose or not? I don't think there's a way to know. Right. Right. So the numbers, and I know that sounds weird to say numbers, but I do look at like research and data just to see like trends. And yeah, these things are hard to measure, hard to really quantify sometimes. And yeah, 10 years old, you do the Valium thing. 12 years old, you start to uh, think about it. Maybe the word is ideate. I don't know if I'm using that word correctly here. Sure. Mm-hmm. Dealing with drug addiction. And at the same time, doing some positive, good things in your life. You're not just, you know, all those things. You're doing all those things. 19, you quit. This is my way of summarizing an entire life. Uh (laughs) You get into your 20s. All right. So take us into your 20s. At at this point, before we get to the 20s. So did you have an attempt, something you could call an attempt? Yes. At the time, I didn't see it as an attempt, but 
I had started to have panic attacks. Um, mm-hmm. Like when I was about 19, around the time that I quit meth, I started having panic attacks. And I did go to a doctor f- and told them that I was depressed. Mm-hmm. Did not tell them about any you know, drug or alcohol use. They gave me Prozac, which I hated. Like it made me feel numb and I only took it for a few weeks and I just, I didn't like it. So I stopped, but I don't even think they recommended therapy at that point either. So in my twenties, um, I continued to, to be depressed and it was Christmas of 2010 that, um, I was going through like an especially rough period. It was basically like a six week long downward spiral. Just a lot of different things happened. My boyfriend and I broke up. I had a health crisis when I didn't have insurance. I had just quit drugs. Like smoking pot was a big thing for me too. So I had quit all drugs. And again, I was doing it on my own without telling anyone and without any support. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, That's a theme. I, I see a theme or a pattern here. <laughs> the secrecy really got me. Man, this is another talking point. I must Yep. later. Go ahead. And so, and I also jeopardized my career. Uh, there was a big project I was working on. I had procrastinated it. And then the company suddenly moved up the deadline and wanted it to be done by Christmas. And that did not feel possible. So I just felt doomed. So I threw myself into work violently to distract myself and um, to try to get this thing done. And I, it was just ridiculous, the situation I put myself in. I was working 80 hours a week. Um, I was not sleeping. I was not eating. I was refusing to feel my feelings. And uh, there was so little time to spare that I dropped off the project literally while I was on my way out of town for Christmas. Um, I was driving to Phoenix. As soon as I dropped off the project, like extreme exhaustion set in. Um, I probably had not slept more than six hours, like the entire, you know, for like a week or two. I was feeling really woozy. I was on the the eight freeway, very busy freeway, holiday traffic. And I just, I started to fall asleep and I knew I was falling asleep. And I, I jerked myself awake a few times. I, I just had nothing to love about life, nothing to like about life, like nothing that even made my life tolerable is what I felt. Mm. Um, so you know, I was just miserable and I made this decision. I just turned up the music and stayed in the fast lane. It was a a reckless decision that I made. I just didn't give a shit. Why do you say it was reckless? Because the next thing I knew I regained consciousness as my car hit gravel, clearly knew I was falling asleep and I just didn't, didn't do, you know, didn't do anything about it. And so I was drifting off of the freeway and instead of gently decelerating and turning with the skid, this is like I, I failed drivers, instructors everywhere. Um, I slammed on the brakes and I yanked the wheel and I was doing 85 miles an hour. So um, I started to skid around in a circle, you know, as I, I spun and I, I realized like my car is going to crash at this point and there was nothing that I could do about it. And I spun halfway around and I was facing all of the traffic and the cars behind me. And I actually made eye contact with the driver behind me. And like, I'll never forget their shocked expression. And that's when, you know, it was all going in slow motion, like that I remembered each 
step of it. I was just horrified and I wasn't scared about what might happen to me, but I, that was the first time I realized like this could cause a huge pileup. There would be injuries, there would be deaths. This was all my fault for being like a total dick and, you know, endangering myself. I was also endangering all these other people, people who were headed on Christmas vacation, you know, these like families who are just trying to get out of town. The things we do when we're in pain. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, the best thing I was hoping for was just that they would watch me die and they would not die. You know, like I, I hope I don't kill anyone. Right. Um, and we know obviously that you survived. <laughs> that's uh, right. What did you kill anyone? I did not. Um, okay, good. Cause you might be in jail. Right. Maybe, yeah. probably not. You'd probably go to get some mental health treatment for a while. And they'd let you, I don't know. It's irrelevant. You didn't right. kill yourself. You didn't kill anybody. But did you hit the cars or hit us, hit something? Well, my car actually caught air and it started to flip up in the air. So it rolled off of the freeway. You know, the first, that was the first great coincidence is that it, it rolled away from the traffic and I had just missed all the rocky cliffs. Um, the ground had just been softened by rain. So it wasn't like the hard desert sand that, or the hard desert ground that's usually um, there. And so I bounced and rolled five times. And while my car was bouncing and rolling, um, I just, I closed my eyes to protect them from the, the glass that was flying around. And at some point it felt very freeing, like realizing mm -hmm. literally nothing that I can do at this point is going to change what is about to occur. And mm -hmm. I just had this feeling of just letting go. Was that the first time you think ever in your life? I think so. Yeah. Cause always being like a control freak and a perfectionist, like I have not experienced that kind of feeling before. Must've been and a really confusing feeling. It was new. new. It was definitely a new feeling and it was a welcome feeling. I just, I did. I felt very peaceful. Um, I felt safe. I didn't feel threatened. So I, and I didn't feel pain. I did not get impaled or anything. As far as I could tell, I was conscious of all mm. five roles. And my car stopped upside down with me hanging from my seatbelt. And then the next coincidence that happened, you know, someone was there immediately outside my window and they're like, we're EMPTs, we're here to help. And I said, fuck, how did you get here so fast? And they said, we were in the car behind you. We saw what happened and they, they were off duty paramedics. They brought out like a neck brace and all of their equipment. And um, they pulled me out of the car, which was smoking. And they were afraid that it might explode. Like how dramatic this whole situation was. Got out of the car. Nothing had hit me. There was like a hundred pound suitcase in the back seat. There was all these loose Christmas presents just all over the field, like broken windows. My phone was in the bushes. My glasses flew off without a scratch. Um, my GPS still worked. Like, and the craziest part was I had no bruises or even scratches. Like there was not hmm. a mark on me. Some people might say that it wasn't just luck on your side that day, <laughs> that there might have been a more divine presence. Uh, how do you feel about that? Do you think that there's any truth to that? Actually, it was like, a, it was a near-death experience for me. When I was feeling so safe and comfortable in the car, the whole car filled with like a light and a warmth and my eyes were closed because mm -hmm. I was afraid of the flying glass, but um I felt a presence with me in the car. 
and I had always been an atheist since I had been a you know 12 or 13 years old when I first started feeling depressed I decided there was not a god this experience you know I don't have to say like oh it was it was God. I don't have to give it a name. I certainly, you know, God forbid I become one of those people who won't shut up about Jesus, you know, but it did feel like all those coincidences added up to this big miracle of me surviving. It did feel like something else was at work and it doesn't feel honest to call myself an atheist anymore. I did not consider, you know, what this experience was until a few days later when I was sharing about it with um, a friend who's a counselor and a healer. And she asked me, do you think that this was an unconscious suicide attempt? And that immediately resonated with me. I was, you know, it, it definitely was. It doesn't sound unconscious. It sounds very conscious. Maybe conscious. I don't think there's a damn thing <laughs> unconscious about it. But just, you know, hearing the word suicide attempt, I was like, oh, gosh, I mean, mm. no, it was, you know, I could have just described it as a car accident that happened because I was tired and, you know, mm. doing something dumb. But yeah, I do think it was a suicide attempt. And I'm very lucky that nobody was hurt. Yeah. Do you feel lucky that you weren't hurt? Yes. I talk to people sometimes and they say, kind of wish I would have died that day. I Those conversations happen. Is that, does that apply to you? No, that was... I'm very grateful for how the whole situation turned out. And that that was like only the first step to my becoming what I feel now is a pretty happy, stable person. It took a lot more work on my part. I've benefited now from years of therapy, like honest and willing to go deep. I'm not counting the years that I was in therapy, but I lied about my drug use or, um, you know, wasn't honest about my depression and, and other things going on in my life. Well, I'm curious if you're comfortable sharing, is it a certain kind of therapy that you're involved with? For me, the most important thing was finding a therapist who specifies in the areas that are important for me to work on. So I never had success with therapy before until I found um, a counselor who specializes in addiction Mm -hmm. and trauma. I mean, I assume just going to a counselor, you know, they would be able to help with whatever came up. But I think if you have a history of trauma, it sounds like it, it's much better to find a therapist who understands that and can help you work on it. Trauma, man. It makes sense that you'd have to find somebody who understands how to work with <laughs> right. someone who's dealing with trauma. I'm glad you found that person. Yeah. Trauma can be subtle. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not always like one big experience. It can be something ongoing. I've been reading a lot about personality disorders, specifically mm. narcissist personality disorder that runs in my, I don't, I don't think runs in my family is the proper term, but um, certain members of my family tend to attract people with narcissism. Mm. And then when they have a kid, the kid tends to um, either become a narcissist themselves or attract a partner with narcissism. It's a family pattern. If you have narcissists in your family, as my counselor says, you have been abused. It may not be physical, but emotional, um, oh my God. mental. Especially if it's a parent that's there all the time. I mean, that is just a, a recipe for, did, you, did this doctor or counselor that you see I'm, I'm, I don't get too hung up on diagnoses, but did you get a diagnosis you think is accurate? I had had uh, people in the past diagnose me with depression and anxiety, mm -hmm. but now, so I, I quit drugs eight years going on nine years ago. And that was 
really important for me and I've had a lot of therapy and I don't have a diagnosis now. So I do believe that, you know, my problems were all based in unprocessed trauma and Mm. addiction. Since we were talking about narcissism, my grandma was a narcissist. My dad was a narcissist. And then I ended up having a kid with a narcissist. The father's a narcissist. Mm -hmm. Yes. Would he say he's a narcissist? He would say, yeah, he would probably say it jokingly and say he's the best narcissist that ever narcissisted. He would probably say something like that. Is that, is it through your partner? No, no. That's part of the whole breaking the the family cycles thing Mm -hmm. that I'm doing now. That's got to be challenging as well. It is. You're you're, you're trying to push back against a a pretty fast moving train there. (laughs) That's right. And there's addictions involved too. And yeah. so I have a whole support group just for co-parenting with uh, someone who has a personality disorder. Sounds very specific, but there are a lot of people who actually uh, need that type of support group. Hell yeah. Oh my God. Of course. I mean, these days in part due to technology, you can get very specific and find people who have that common need or problem. Sure. You officially consider this, you have one, we can consider the, the drug, the, the ongoing drug use back in the days as, as a suicide attempt. The car was the one. Yes. You haven't tried since. No. And you, get, you sort of gave us sort of overview of sort of the post-accident journey, for lack of a better word, with finding a counselor, quitting drugs. I know there's a child in that part of that conversation as well. Yes. Had a beautiful yeah. child that I feel a, a responsibility Sure. Um. (laughs) So in that time, did you ever get back to that space of ideating, fantasizing? Yeah, that's a good question. After I had my kid with someone who ended up being, um, he was was an alcoholic and he relapsed and he had the personality disorder. Um, So living in that household was very challenging. Um, There was what my counselor calls domestic abuse. I, mm. I would not have called it at the time, but um, it was because it was emotional. It was not um, physical, but you mm-hmm. know, I had fear and there was, mm. there were real problems in that household. I did find myself thinking about suicide, but not, not actually considering doing it, but more like, you know, I'm just over this life, you know, like maybe hoping that something would happen to me. Right. Accident. Right. Yeah. Like I, I knew I wasn't actually going to try it because my daughter needs me. I mean, that was probably the biggest factor. It reminds me of a friend of mine who for a long period of her life, she knew she wasn't going to do it, but she would be, she lived in Israel for a while and Israel's, you know, there's some problems there. And mm-hmm. she would say, every time I'm at a bus stop, I just hope there's an explosion Wow. and I'm out, you know? And that's, so that's, I don't know what you call that. I don't know what that name is. There's probably a name in the DSMV for that. <laughs> Some fancy acronym, but it's, you know, kind of wanting to die, but you're not going to do, do the thing, mm-hmm. but you'd probably be okay with it. That might be um, radiation. I'm not sure. Might be, yeah. How many people in the world know about that attempt other than people in the, I didn't ask you, by the way, I'll ask you that. How many people know? And did you go to a hospital? Those are my two questions. Um, I did not even go to a hospital. The sheriff did not give me a ticket because he was so impressed and happy that I was alive. And I had just, I had fallen asleep. I, you know, he asked me if I had been drinking and, you know, I hadn't. 
the tow truck driver as he was um, driving me home and my car was totally wrecked. He says about the gruff sheriff, he's like, you know, I've never seen the sheriff in such a good mood before. And I was like, really? Because he was kind of, you know, I mean, he was just a really gruff, grizzled old man. And he said, you lived he does not see, he, you know, he doesn't see accidents like that where people live. Like he, <laughs> you made his day. <laughs> it was just like, wow, me and my stupid suicide attempt. I made his day by living. So I did share that story with people, but I don't always share about how conscious the attempt was. Sure. Sometimes when I share it, I just say like, you know, I was being an idiot and I was working too hard and fell asleep in the car. Right. In the the context of this podcast, I I meant it as not just sharing, but yeah, underneath what you really were thinking. Falling asleep at the wheel is like, oh, bonehead move. I should have hydrated and gotten more sleep. Right. Uh, But I kind of really wanted to die is a little bit more difficult, I think. Right. And now it's been more than 10 years. So it's a little easier to talk about. You don't want to talk about that stuff. Or for me, I I didn't want to talk about it while I was still in the middle of feeling so depressed and miserable. It's nice to be able to share it now that I've reached a point where it feels like a distant memory and it feels like a place that I'll hopefully never go again. Right. Do you think you'll ever tell your daughter? She will probably hear a lot of my stories because I I have shared them publicly. So it it wouldn't be smart for me to try to hide them from her. (laughs) There's recordings and podcasts and things like that. So yes, I think I'll be honest with her about I'll have to be honest with her about my past with addiction because I don't want her to relive family cycles that her parents and grandparents and great grandparents have all struggled with. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So if you had died that day, she's not born. That's right. Isn't that weird? I know it is. It's just, it's just so weird. It's, it is crazy to think of how much has changed in the past 10, 12 years. Yeah. I never, never imagined myself you know, having a kid. Did you imagine yourself getting older? No, I think I always thought that I would die pretty young. Your parents know about that day? They must, right? Or is that the one where you say um, I was just really tired? My mom knows about it now because she saw me perform that story. And we're going to talk about these stories. All right. So she heard you tell that story or a version of that story. Mm-hmm. Got you. What's it like to tell that story to a public audience? Presumably most you don't know. Right. Right. Maybe a few people, you know, other lights, there's a microphone maybe. (laughs) Yes. I think I've told that story enough times that it doesn't feel as scary or as difficult anymore, especially with the amount of time that's passed. But there are definitely other stories that feel more raw that I'm careful about who I would share it with. When you say this, you, you've, um, there are different stories because you're also a writer, right? So your your stories that you're putting together, are they more for the eyes to read or the ears to hear? Both. Both. So yes, I am a, a published writer as well as a storyteller. I'm actually looking at the questions that I sent you. I think I sent you, right? Yes. And I, I think I know the answer to the will you try or might you try again one based on what you shared. It sounds like pretty unlikely. No. Yes. Yes. Pretty unlikely. Yeah. What these days or dating back whenever, what helps you feel better in the past? It sounds like 
you went to drugs to feel a little better. Mm-hmm. And then there were other things like what do, have you found anything else that is, I wouldn't say a substitute, but just makes you, it helps. I think that um, reaching out, like forming a community, sharing with others, it invites people to come up to me after I tell my story and um, you know, they share about what mm-hmm. they've gone through similarities, differences. Mm. Uh, I think that's all really important. Most, most of us, at least I definitely tend to isolate when I'm depressed. And so having a community is and support is important, not suffering alone. That is the biggest killer. Do you know what animal kills the most people every year? Oh, I think I do know this one. Deer? And maybe the word animal. Animal includes any organism. Oh, oh, okay. So yeah, some kind of bacteria, maybe disease. Mosquitoes. Oh, mosquitoes. And I think yeah. I, I, if I ever write a book, and yes, I'll hire you to edit it. There's a connection I'm trying to make. This isn't obviously well-formed, but it's the same idea. Like people never guess mosquitoes and they're doing all this damage. And the sort of idea around suffering in silence or people in your life not creating space to have these conversations is like the similar sort of quiet mass killer. It's not guns and booze and alcohol. They're all mixed in there. That's the thing to me that is there and it's fucking killing people. I don't know what to do about it. I guess I'm doing something about it by doing this, right? I mean, that's my own little way of helping. Right. Um, I have a question about how you ended up in San Diego because it's really nice out there, but it's also really expensive out there. Yes. Did that have to do with the narcissistic ex? No. Um. Let's see. I moved here right after college. I grew up in Phoenix. Not Missouri. Yeah. After Missouri, we, we moved to Phoenix. It just was not the right climate for me environmentally, politically. I felt like there was a lot of racism there at the time. I think it's getting better now. Back then, even marijuana was charged as a felony. So, you know, I had gotten in trouble for that and I just, I needed to get out of there. And so San Diego and Southern California was always where I had taken all my vacations and I just always wanted to live here. So. Wow. Uh, it sounds like you have people in your life to talk to because you had specifically mentioned community. Yeah, I have support groups now. That's been really important to continue going to them, even on Zoom, especially during the pandemic. That's not the same as having friends, though. Oh, right. Yes. Yes, I do have. I have good friends, too. Some of them don't understand everything that I've been through. Right. They still listen to my stories. And I you know, appreciate that. And they ask questions. <laughs> about it. So they are willing to learn and to be open-minded about these types of issues we're talking about that have a stigma. Uh, When you share your story and it's, it's the stuff around addiction, depression, perhaps suicide. What percentage of the time do people say dumb shit to you that you're like, Oh man, really? Okay. You know, I don't think that people really do. I don't think people do say dumb shit to me. I have pretty great friends who are non-judgmental. Um, I make a point mm. to have those kind of people around me. And I don't really share with people that that I don't know that well. Well, that's not true. The storytelling events that I go to, I also trust the audiences there to also mm. be open-minded and non-judgmental. So, so far, I haven't shared with a group of people who were... Yeah. Much more likely that the person who's going to seek you out afterwards is like, thank you type of comment, or I've been there type of comment, not I didn't like your story, or you shouldn't (laughs) talk about that, or it would be awkward. But are you, maybe this is a little weird, but are you 
raising your daughter alone or do you have a partner now? Um, I'm a single parent. Yeah. Is that hard? Yeah. Because you have yeah. a job too, right? I work from home, so I am able to be flexible. Yeah. She sees her dad sometimes, but he's not, he's not always reliable. So I do feel like I need to be the stable, dependable parent all of the time. And I'm able to now. I would not have been able to do that in the past. Right. Is there a reason why you go by Jay and not your full name? There are reasons why I go by Jay and not my full name. Yes. Um, (laughs) I love the way you just restated my question. (laughs) To buy yourself some time and decide if you even want to answer it. (laughs) I have an ethnic name uh, because of my biological dad's background. It comes from his heritage. Mm -hmm. And he actually um, gave me up for adoption. Uh, My stepdad adopted me when I was 12, which was a very old age. How did this not come up in our conversation? (laughs) This is the abandonment issues where that came from. That did pique my interest, but okay. Right. Okay. (laughs) Sure. Got it. Yeah. That was the, the dad who was a narcissist kind of fought for us at first and then um, realized it would be easier to just let my stepdad adopt us. And it was better to not be raised by um, my biological dad, you know, after the age of about nine. Yeah. It was one of those things where, you know, I got rejected and I thought that it was terrible, but in hindsight, I see that it was really the best thing that could have happened. Things worked out the way that they, they should have. Mm. All right. My final thought or question is, uh, are there any specific myths that you can identify that you'd like to dispel? Um, I think that suicide attempts can look very different for different people. And so, you know, the myth that it has to be a specific conscious action, like it doesn't have to be, you know, someone cutting their wrists or trying to shoot themselves. It could be someone who ends up crashing a car and you know the story doesn't sound like it's a suicide attempt until you get into the details so if someone tells you that they are considering suicide or they're very depressed you know i would believe them and not try to question the reasons why that they're saying that you know the the point is that they're trying to share and and so i i would want to listen to that to believe them in really any instance probably believe them is like the best it's a it's a wiser is a smarter default it's a smarter go-to i guess yeah if you have a kid and that kid's and maybe the kid does isn't honest i get i get it like you're frustrated and you're like all right you're just making it up most of the time i don't think people are making this shit up (laughs) the default should be believe them yeah default should be believe them and stop talking so much and that's how you start listening Mm. that's my thing your default should not be you talking, <laughs> but I'm a jerk. Your default was just shutting up and believing them, man, just there. We'd save like a lot of lives. Just that starting point. That's right. Just that talking about all this other stuff. Are you an editor now? Your work is editing? Yes. Book author, editor, poet, storyteller. Cool. Yeah. I appreciate you joining me here. So I, I, you were saying something and I... Oh, um, I was just going to say that for me, it took a near-death experience, but I hope that you know for others, it doesn't have to go that far. You know, it doesn't have to take a suicide attempt to get out of depression. I mean, for me, it did. I had to hit rock bottom, but um, you know, I hope that's something that people get out of your show. You know, that mm. They can get help at any time that they decide 
that they're ready. And the right help isn't always the first help. Sometimes not. It's just so hard when you don't have help in getting help. Right. It's so easy to give up. It's not a judgment. I get it. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to just say, I, I just, I'm overwhelmed by the system. I'm overwhelmed by insurance. I'm overwhelmed by this. I don't understand. All, I just, it just, and you get why people are like, you know what? I'll just not do that. Mm-hmm. And I'll have a few drinks to calm down. I get it. A hundred percent. I get it. So I hear what you're saying. I agree with you, but I also recognize like, man. Yes, it's work. It's It's work. It's hard. I probably contacted 25 counselors before I found one that was specialized in the area, took my insurance and was accepting new patients. Right. All of those things have to be happening. Were there there any of the uh, therapists that you spoke to? And then like within like a minute, you're like, I got to get the fuck out of this office. You're an imbecile. Yes. Yep. There were, there were two. And I, I learned that a bad therapist is worse than having no therapist. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, thank you again. Um, thank you. Keep doing what you're doing and maybe I'll see you at one of the shows, virtual yeah. shows, if you want Probably. to come back. <laughs> Probably will. I've been out and about. Enjoy your day. Hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Stay well. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Jay out in California. Thank you, Jay. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. We also have a way for you to leave us a recorded message. We would love to hear from you. And I will put that link in the show notes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your comments, questions, or whatever else is on your mind. And finally, if you could help us out, and it really would help a lot, rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple, it helps people find these stories by these survivors. So if you would take a moment, and it just takes a moment to leave a rating and or review. Thank you so much for that. And that is all for episode number 115. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.